The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition and the podcast. A special hello if you're listening at your own leisure. Uh, most of the features will be going up. Not all of them are on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. They'll go up on a Monday, I think. So they'll be there for you to have a re-listen to. But a special hello if you're listening live. Coming up for your information and entertainment this evening. There's a bloke who tried to build a B&B in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Chris Patterson's his name. It's a gloomy tale of self-discovery in some ways. It ends okay, but oh my goodness, it reminds me actually a bit of a, like um, the, the Fitzcarraldo story, the madness of the idea. It's at Jamestown, which is in Fiordland. Go and have a look at it. It was a failed set settlement once, but there ain't no roads there. He gave this a go. And it ended in tears. The full story will be after or oh, around about the 10.30 mark. Enviro News this evening. Um, some farmer, on purpose or not, I don't know, it's before the court, so I'm not going to speculate, but the deal is he managed to get rid of one-third of an entire plant species, which is rather rare. It's Mullenbeckia estonii, if you want a botanical name, and it's all over the place if you have a look at, you know, roundabouts in the cities, council plantings, and in, you know, garden shops. But in the wild, it's a bit of a different story. Forest and bird, as you might assume, aren't completely happy, and they're taking the guy to court. More on that for Enviro News. It'll be after human statistics after 10. A heads up for tomorrow night. Had a great chat with John Bonham's son, Jason. John Bonham, one of the finest drummers ever to pick up sticks or sit on a stool. Actually, last night, tore into Kashmir and played it so freaking loud. It was awesome. He does this dedication to his father and Led Zeppelin, and it's quite a work of scholarship, actually. It's fully endorsed by the rest of the bands that, that are alive. John Bonham died at 32. He drunk a distillery, basically. That story, Jason Bonham's going to be on tomorrow night, round about the 10.30 mark. All right, here we go. Uh, science this hour, astronomy with Grant Christie. Do go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. We have some complimentary links up there. I think it's just one this week, but whatever. Uh, you'll see everything that's on this weekend uh, as well. Next up, though, Science Report with Rochelle Constantine. She's finally back from an Antarctic trip. Didn't land on Antarctica, but it's all about the sea. Is there a We need a marine biologist. Is there a marine biologist in the house? Thank you. Come in. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Rochelle Constantine hasn't been a feature of our science report for a little while because she's been busy doing something called science. And it's... Um, uh, a rare and precious thing to get down to Antarctic waters if you're a marine biologist and this is exactly what you've been doing. You were there for how long? 
Uh, we had six weeks at sea. So, Aaron, you know, when you talk about going to Antarctica, there's not many people who say that they went there and never touched the land. So we saw it a few times. We right. saw Cape Adair and yeah. saw Scott Island, which is a tiny little pimple. But when you're in the Southern Ocean, any form of land is actually a nice thing to see. Yeah, I yeah. bet it is. Well, there was no real reason for you to um, uh, hit the land. It's not a touristy thing. You're doing research at sea. What research were you doing? So our work was uh, part of this uh, Ross Sea Ecosystem and Environment Voyage. So as we've talked about before, they, um, New Zealand's part of a big push that was successful to get uh, the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area um, declared. And so as a result of that, we're now uh, oh, you know, obliged under pressure joyfully, I think, to, to actually study what's going on down in the Ross Sea region. So our voyage was part of uh, two voyages in a row, so there's going to be one next summer mm -hmm. uh, in 2019, and we were looking at a whole bunch of different things. We were doing atmospheric research to look at cloud formation and how um, the, the sort of the processes that d are driving the cloud formation and development under climate change models. So to date, uh, most of the information we have sort of in our neck of the woods is only down to our sub-Antarctic islands. Mm. So actually going all the way down um, to Cape Adair and then across the Ross Sea and back up to New Zealand again actually gave us a massive amount of coverage of, of atmospheric space. And so the atmospheric scientists were looking at how literally how um, little particles form and then develop clouds, make snow, drive the weather that runs the that southern ocean but also that weather system actually drives broader weather systems throughout our planet so it's a really dynamic space so that was a lot of fun the folks from uh, Niwa and University of Canterbury were running that work so the other part of the work was then you know on the sea so that was where you know our our stuff kicked in so there's some oceanography um, research going on which is a long running project about how the Ross Sea um, flows basically, how the, the oceanographic processes that are going on and the, how that influences ice formation breakup. Because one of the really big challenges for us in studying all of the Antarctic spaces, we know it's changing, but it's changing in really different ways. So, for example, off the Antarctic Peninsula, the West Antarctic Peninsula, which is the Pacific side, yeah. that area there, there's pretty much no ice throughout most of it now. That's a big deal because the ice is where the phytoplankton you know, hold up under in the, the winter months and then when the ice melts in the summer that phytoplankton's released which creates a zooplankton bloom which other things feed off and, and including the whales. Are you talking that little peninsulary thing that looks like the yeah. south of South America? Yeah, kind of that's right. Up to yeah, and, and sort of South America and the yeah. Antarctic Peninsula are almost touching each other. So it doesn't get snow anymore much? Uh, it does a bit in Ice. the winter, yeah, but it's and when you go down there during the broader summer months, okay. large parts of it are completely devoid of ice now, and even on the land in that area. Oh. So um, in, in the Ross Sea region, what's happening is, and broadly speaking, is we seem to be getting more ice and more ice coverage, but how thick is that ice? Um, you know, how extensive is it? How permanent is it? Those are all big questions that are being asked um, by, mm. by folks involved in the Deep South um, National Science Challenge. So we deployed, we went down to uh, Cape Adair and deployed a series of moorings that will stay there for a year. So next year when the Tangaroa goes down there, they'll pick up those moorings and they're actually recording all kinds of different information about water flow, 
flow and the, the physical properties of that water flow as well as um, various uh, sort of environmental parameters and what have you. Mm. So we uh, that was another arm of the project. And one thing that was sort of constant once we got south of 60, so um, was which was most of our time. So it takes about six days or so to get down there and then the same to get home. So we had about a month in mm. Southern Ocean waters. And so what, what um, is quite interesting is what's going on at different depths of the Southern Ocean um, with regards to productivity and ocean biochemistry. So there's this... Um, for it's, it's a thing it's called a rosette and it's a ctd which stands for uh, conductivity temperature and depth so the conductivity is measuring salinity in the water so how salty or fresh or you know those properties um acidic not acidic the water is mm. and then we've got um the temperature is basically how the temperature gradients change and then depth is a measure of the atmospheric pressure and so this uh it's a, a round device with a whole bunch of bottles in it they basically look like just tubes that you know you'd put underground to run your you know water through and those they're able to they're computer programmed and they can open and close them at different depths under the water and take samples of water at different depths and then it's hauled up so the deepest we went was about five kilometers good god that's quite that's for fair depth it is it's amazing i didn't realize it got that deep down there yeah yeah there's some it's amazing down there there's you know shallow bits deep bits the whole the whole gamut so on one day actually was my favorite day i think because we had a um a weather sonde up which the atmospheric people were doing to look at the clouds we went up 19 kilometers and we had the ctd down five kilometers so you know we'd covered about 24 kilometers mm. of of this you know this vertical space of the southern ocean which i, I think is just really mind-blowing and the things we were able to measure so this technological developments are so um, great for us as scientists. Mm. So the CTD work, it, it gets all kinds of things, you know, um, uh, information, but also it collects in that water sample. You get microbial community information, you get um, plankton, you know, phytoplankton, zooplankton, as well as the ocean chemistry. So there was a whole team of people who are collect, you know, wanting that, that, uh, those data. It's kind of fun to watch um, when the when the uh, CTD comes back out of the water, there's this kind of little horse trading goes on between the the microbial biologists and the plankton biologists and the the um, atmospheric um, ocean scientists, and they're like, well, I'll have this one and you have that one, uh -huh. and they're all able to use it for, to answer a lot of different questions. And so, what about your specialist subject, whales? You were yeah. sniffing whales down there. Yeah. So we were um, the the neat thing for this project for us. Well. One, we had a team of four of us on board, and we spent 600 hours looking out at sea. So up to around about 16 hours a day where there was one or more of us on the bridge looking. And we saw, uh, I think we saw something like uh, just over 70 groups of, of whales uh, from six species. So that includes killer whales. Um, and But we had blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales, minke whales. Um, and so a real variety of species that we saw. Um, and it was quite interesting because when we got down, you know, sort of that sort of broader Cape Adair region, that was where we saw mostly the minke whales. And they're the smaller 10-metre whale that likes being close to ice. Mm. We then, as we moved a little further north, we came over this area called the Iceland Bank. And the Iceland Bank is usually covered in ice. Mm. 
and it wasn't this year. So the people who studied benthos were really excited because they could put their, their camera systems down and look at the seabed, and it's all just carved up from, from lots of um, iceberg action. It's mm-hmm. an amazing place. But that was where we saw quite a lot of uh, fin whales, and then that slight, as we went further north, it slightly overlapped with humpback whales, and then we were up around um, this uh, area of Scott Island, which is about... 67, 66 I think latitude south so it's it's sort of outside of the Ross Sea as we think of it proper and that was where we found most of the humpbacks and the really cool thing for, for me was um, that where we found most of the humpbacks was where we'd sort of predicted we should find them based on our tag studies we did back in 2015 of the whales so the whales at Raoul Island where we tagged them north of New Zealand they swam in sort of two directions a bunch of them swam over broadly towards the peninsula, the Antarctic Peninsula, but mums with newborn calves of year swam pretty much straight down to the towards the Ross Sea region. And that kind of sort of um, Scott Island area was where a lot of our mums with calves went. So we were, that was about as far east um, as we went, uh, Ross Island, and uh, sorry, um, uh, Scott Island and then over to Long Ridge and but it was interesting only just you know sailing a day a little further east there were no whales over by Long Ridge they were all back by this tiny little island mass and the sea mounts in that area so what was quite nice was that it confirmed to us that the whales we tagged it wasn't just luck that those ones went there that year and normally when you find groups of humpback whales there's you know all adult groups or you know groups with calves what have you but we actually found 35 percent of our groups had calves in them which shows that that area is a place for mums with their newborns Are the pop- um, is the population of- rebounding as expected post whaling so for the um, humpback whales it's uh, it's slow from Oceania so they're about 50% recovered the East Australian population which is just you know across the way they're they're pretty much close to a hundred percent recovered so that's partly why we wanted to go down there was to try and understand is it something about Antarctica so one of one of the things you know which is their feeding grounds they go to in the summer so one of the things we did which was really exciting to me was we were able to use two new types of technology for our whole voyage um, there were they were doing uh, echo using an echo sounder so it's a really powerful sends down a beam bounces back a return signal of prey fields. So that could be fish, it could be krill, and the guys from uh, Niwa, Johan and Pablo are really, really good at translating what the the mass, you know, actually um, translates to for an organism. Mm. And so we were, as we were going along, we'd have nothing, 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 and then we'd get these little patches of krill or a big school of fish, and we would be able to map all of those. So we have this pretty much full-time record of where we went, and we're overlaying where we saw those... um, Krill, krill patches with where we saw whales and where we didn't see krill patches did we still see whales or not so we're actually getting an idea of where the food is and does that directly to relate to where the whales are because they need to feed right. that's a really valuable thing the other thing that um, we were able to do was um, Andrew Mariner from Niwa ran this really uh, cool in-water sampling of dimethyl sulfide so the smell of, of the sea which we know down there the um, that exists, so it's a, a product that um, f- a phytoplankton release when grazed on by a zooplankton. 
acryl. And so we actually have this dimethyl sulfide um, data as well, and we're going to see if the whales are linked to that. So we've kind of got these extra layers of information about how productive the parts of um, mm -hmm. Antarctica are, or the Southern Ocean are, and how the whales are using that. Are they just sort of swimming around willy-nilly, or are they actually directly targeting these more productive places? And certainly in the case of the fin whales, we found lots of little patches of krill. We saw lots of little patches of fin whales. So there's lots of um, neat stuff that we're now analysing now we're back here. So heaps went on. Did you, were you there to take biopsies or yep. anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So we, we got um, biopsy samples of whales and fluke ide identification shots. So we're able to... So you had to get up and close and, for that? Yeah, we did. We did. We managed to launch the boat, the small boat, a few times. It's pretty challenging down there. Yeah. <laughs> and even on good days, it's still pretty tough. But um, the the crew, uh, the bridge crew on uh, Tangaroa are amazing amazing at driving that 70 metre ship like it's just a little boat and they drive the, the ship in such a way that they could get us close to the whales. Also humpback whales are really um, quite gregarious and like, oh, what are you doing? And they okay. come over. So we were able to biopsy them. We used a, um, a crossbow system on a line and you just pull a line back in with your sample. So we were really pleased with our, our samples and, and the photos of flukes. And so now all of the analysis of that work's going on as well. And life aboard a ship for that amount of time, it's a special feeling. Yeah, yeah. How were the seas? Uh, it was uh, it was mostly good. We actually had a really good run on the way down. We were quite lucky. The thing in Antarctica is it's really foggy. Ah. A lot. <laughs> yeah, so, and I don't think you quite appreciate that till you, you get down there and there's, I mean, it's it's incredibly close fog almost all of the time. You never, and you don't see that because people don't bother sending those pictures through of no. just a white screen, yeah. do they? No, they Here's don't. Antarctica on another day. <laughs> another day in the fog. Uh. There was a lot of that. We had mostly good weather. We did get a bit of a spanking on a, a few days. I think our, our most delightful weather was going um, across to Long Ridge and we had, I think we had nine metres from the uh, oh, northwest, and we had six metre seas coming from the southwest. So we had two seas coming from directly opposite directions, and we had gusts of of uh, well over 70 knots on a regular basis. That day was was hard to stand up mm. and uh, hard to keep your food on your plate. Yeah, most of us are pretty seaworthy, so it worked out all right. Hats off to the people who cook at sea, the galley oh, gosh, staff. Yeah. Isn't it amazing, amazing what they can do? Yeah, they are amazing, and you know you. We, none of us ever starve on that ship, you know, they, they look after us very well and every day, you know, fresh baking, amazing food and, um, yeah, it w I mean, it was a really good voyage. We had a full ship, so there were 40 of us on board, 23 okay. scientists, 17 crew, but it was a great, great group of people. We had a lot of... A lot of fun and we all got, considering how many different projects we were going, I've only told you about a couple of them, we all managed to actually come home with, with more data than we anticipated and, and what we've done is we now lay down kind of the, you know, the first level of information that next year's voyage will add another level. And so a lot of our work was done not not specifically inside the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area but also outside because that's the thing with MPAs is, you know, you don't need to just know what's going on inside, you need to know what is going on outside similar environments. Yeah, it's not like yeah. it has a predator-proof fence. No, it certainly doesn't, yeah. <laughs> and there's a blog that you did for the, for the voyage. Mm, yep, so um, we had a, there was sort of all the various projects got covered in blogs, so there's lots of little video clips and photos, and um, we'll, we'll put, put that online so people can go and have a look at it. And, so if they're listening right now, what, what is it? Oh, oh, you don't know? No, I don't know. Oh, that's right. It's quite long, oh. but I'll put the link. It's if you look up Niwa, uh, you know, 
niwa.co.nz and then probably look up uh, Tangaroa Voyage 2018. Okay. You'll, you'll probably find it. Okay, yeah. good one. Uh, hopefully it will be up uh, on the, if you click here for this weekend's show, yeah. and it'll be one of the first links there. Rochelle? Welcome back to land. Thank you. And good luck with the studies. Yeah, now the hard work really begins. All right, yeah. right. analysing the data. Yep. <laughs> good one. Okay, we'll talk again soon. We'll do. Bye. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Enter online for a VIP experience. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant, hello. Hi, Graham. Uh, just to mention about the sky this week, well, it, there have been some clear nights where I've been. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Venus and Jupiter are looking like they need permission to land. <laughs> really, really bright. Yeah, well, Jupiter, uh, Venus is going to get brighter and brighter. It's low in the uh, in the western sky just after sunset, so it's easy to see. Um, you just got to watch it a little while, make sure it's not some aircraft coming yeah. to land at Auckland Airport. But if you land it in the country and that's not an option, it's going to be Venus. Mm. Uh, nothing else like it. Uh, and as the months go by, it's going to get you know higher and higher in the sky and get brighter and brighter. So it's uh, still got a way to go. And of course, Jupiter on the other side of the sky, rising uh, early evening, is uh, very bright. And uh, we've just been past its opposition. So in other words, we're about as close as we get to it in the year. So oh. that's why it's just sort of appears brighter and uh, because it is actually closer right. um, and uh, but uh, yeah so Jupiter's um, looks magnificent and even with a pair of binoculars you can see the four big moons exactly yes uh, so you know our binoculars that you can buy for like 50 bucks or 100 bucks or even cheaper at a second-hand place uh, will show you the moons of Jupiter mm. and uh, you know miles better than anything Galileo had to look at so yeah. uh, when you look at there and see those little moons and you know you go and look at them every night and uh, even over hours you'll see them changing their position mm. but uh, particularly over a few days and you start drawing them and try to figure out what he figured out yeah, <laughs> yeah it takes some doing yeah I mean, it, I mean it shows us genius of yeah. course yeah and uh, the, heart, the the trick is keeping your binoculars steady yes and not ending up with a big crick in your neck. Um. <laughs> All right, we have a link up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, our astronomy picture of the week. It's kind of a confounding thing, and we should mention, I think it's not to scale. It's not to scale. <laughs> it's no, the it's universe. A, it's, Hello, there's the universe. It's, it's, what? It's a graphic in a glance. The universe in a glance, basically, mm -hmm. is the idea of it. And uh, so it's... Um, it's showing really that um, right in the centre is the Earth and then looking out past the sun and the planets, uh, you know, it's, it's showing all the stuff we could see. It's what we call the observable universe. It's what astronomers use because it's generally widely accepted now, I think, uh, by scientists, astronomers, that in fact the there's a more universe beyond what we can see. How and do the, they know that? Uh, well, it's simply that the light hasn't had time to reach us. Oh. So in 14, you know, just under 14 billion years that the universe has existed, if something uh, is happening along a lot further away, then we can't see that because the photons simply haven't had time to reach us. So right. that's basically the... So we have no idea how big the universe is. We no, can't, no, we can't it, find it, it in out. In fact, it could well be effectively infinite, not just uh, have a size. It has a, it is an infinite extent. And what we're living in is just a bubble, a part that happens to be the bit we can see. And there will be other, you know, bubbles right. filling up infinity right. we don't know right. um, there's a whole lot we don't know but uh, yeah so as you go back through time and you go back uh, past the planets 
Then you see there's the realm of stars, which are the things in our own galaxy. They're relatively nearby, um, within a few thousands of, ten thousands of light years of something of the sun. Mm. Uh, and uh, But once you get outside the, our galaxy, then we see galaxies. We see the big bright nearby ones. And as you go back, they get sort of dimmer and dimmer and further away. But also, you know, it shows really that uh, the further we're looking back in time, galaxies were a lot simpler. The complex galaxies like the Milky Way are caused by the mergers of thousands of mergers over billions of years of small galaxies that build up to big things like the one we're in. And uh, so then you go right back even further than that uh, and you get to uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is sort of radiation left over from the Big Bang. Yeah. Uh, and we can see that with uh, microwave satellites like Planck. Uh, so we measure that. Um, and uh, so effectively those satellites are looking back so far in time, we're actually re- you're really seeing the Big Bang at 3,000 years or so, right. uh, thousands of years after the, uh, the Big Bang. So we'd be looking at a universe that was much smaller. Uh, it would have been smaller, yes. But it's I mean, everywhere, it's expanded. in every direction it's, you go. That's What's, right. That's wrong, isn't it? If you, if you look in every direction, 13.7 billion years or thereabouts in one direction, and then you go to the other direction and you see the universe, the, the beginning of the Big Bang with the microwave background radiation, um, that's too far apart. Yes, uh, that's right. So that, that was one of the crucial bits of evidence that said that, you know, basically the universe had to have undergone the idea of inflation. Very soon, within a sort of a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang started, the universe inflated at a rate far faster than the speed of light. And although it seems sort of an, uh, wrong, people learn that you can't go faster than the speed of light. Space can expand faster than the speed of light. It's just that something travelling in space, speed of something travelling in the space can't go faster than the speed of light. But space can expand at any rate you like, um. and it, it underwent this huge um, stretching, and so that meant bits of the universe that we can see one direction that can never have been together with the bit we can see in the other direction have almost identical properties, and that tells physicists that they once were together in the same place. The only way you can have that perfect equilibrium, the perfect match like that, is though once together they've now been pulled apart by the expansion of the universe. But to believe that, then you have to have the universe had to have expanded at a much faster rate than it's expanding today. And there's no other So that's the idea right? of inflation. That's Inflation solves all these problems. Right. So that's why virtually all cosmologists today would argue and would say we have pretty near absolute proof that there was this huge event called inflation right at the beginning. I think about these things sometimes when I'm driving in a car and I, my head explodes. I have to pull over and have a lie down. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, because if you look further and further, uh, uh, the observable universe, we're only looking back in time. We can't really tell where, well, there's no such thing as now. No, that's right. Well, now is where we happen to be. But uh, any, I mean, when we look at sort of the planet Venus, we're seeing as it was seconds before. Yeah. And but we can't see the edge before, of the universe. Actually. We only can see the, this old-fashioned universe. The further we try and see, observe the universe, we're only going back in time. We're going back in time. That's right. Right. We can't yet see the future part. Oh. <laughs> but it's great. But, you know, it takes a little while to get your head around those sort of basic ideas. But they're... they're you know, even sort of elementary introductory books about sort of astronomy and cosmology talk about this stuff now and, and explain it uh, oh. well. I mean, they show you with diagrams and things. So take a, take a jump and read a book and yeah. watch the documentaries.
Yeah, there are some no, good, they, good ones out they're there. T- they're telling the story so well now. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Um, oh, that Khalid someone or other. Oh, yes. Arabic name. Yes. yes, he's good. Yes. Everything and Nothing, that's a good documentary. I think it might be on Sky doing a rotate at the oh, moment. Right. It's really good. Yeah, I've watched his stuff before. Okay, uh, that's up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. You can see that's our universe. Uh, now, big astronomers meeting um, in Christchurch. You were there, Grant. Yeah, this last weekend it was a great event uh, hosted by the Canterbury Astronomical Society and they always put on... You know, do a great job of hosting this. It's a national meeting that's held somewhere in the country every year, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Canterbury always do a great job. It was held uh, at the in the old in the arts precinct, the part of the old university. These wonderful stone buildings were we Rutherford studied as a student, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know the meeting was held in the Great Hall, which sounds awesome, and it is. It's, mm-hmm. It must be one of the most iconic. And Jerry Gilmore studied there as well. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, so it's great, and so there are lots of really interesting speakers. We had Katie Mack, who's a um, assistant professor from uh, um, I think it's sort of North Carolina University, North Carolina, mm-hmm. but she's internationally known for her communication with astronomy. She's um, got a very active tweets and communicating with the public, and she's in great demand. So she was the uh, key. Uh, um, speaker at the mm-hmm. meeting, and that was uh, very nice to see her and hear her speak. What was the finger food like? Finger food was excellent, actually. What, what sort of theme did they have? Was it sausage rolls and the like, the tiny mini mince pies? Did they have them, or was it more of the sandwichy? Uh, well, it was quite a mixture, actually. They catered for, I mean, as you do have to do now, for people who are vegan and uh, with special dietary right. requirements as, as well. But, Just point uh, them to the garden, was, don't you? And say, go good and cafe this. food. Um, right, yeah, okay. no, excellent catering. And the dinner is uh, great fun as well. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's uh, real crazy. When astronomers get together, you know, mm. they just sort of always got something to talk about with each other. So something's it's, it's gone like off. A, it's a great melting I spot. bet. Something that's gone off the finger food menu, and it's very disappointing to me, the chipolata with tomato sauce. I don't, you don't, I like don't, m- I don't miss it. You don't? I do. <laughs> okay. Well, not since I was six years old. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our Earth's orbital changes have influenced climate, um, and trying to reel this back millions and millions of years to answer a few questions have got back to 215 million years of this pulsating climate change. Yes, um, yeah, th- this is uh, something I, I wasn't actually aware of, but, uh, you know, basically they have known for a while there's a, an, a, a cyclical change of, of the planets going around the sun. Uh, so every... 405,000 years, uh, the um, the orbits of Jupiter and uh, Venus conspire to slightly elongate the Earth's orbit. This takes the Earth away from the, a little bit further away from the Sun on part of its orbit. So the Earth's orbit's nearly circular, but during this short phase where these two planets are interacting and pulling on the Earth for a short period uh, in terms of history, uh, the uh, Earth gets uh, can get up to five percent further away than it normally did. So therefore, the five percent, yeah, quite a big change. So it's so the Earth's orbit goes from near circle to a bit of an ellipse, which is slightly pulled one way, and it's caused by the a synchronous uh, alignment of those two planets, Venus and Jupiter. Good and this God. has been worked out by astronomers for a long time. It's sort of kind of like the clockwork solar system. You can follow these cycles now on supercomputers. You can compute where these things are. Uh-huh. Um, 
So that's been known. And then these uh, guys doing the study had drilled a a core down through some strata uh, that uh, I think it was around about 550 metres long, about about 55 centimetres across, so a big long tube of rock going down that long. And it it goes back through Earth history, 215 million years. And they can see changes in in those layers and they get the sort of uh, change every 405,000 years. And uh, so the the big thing about this new study is that they've taken it back from, they've gone back 50 million years in the past and knew about that, but now they've gone back 215 million years. So the same thing's been happening over at least that time, possibly longer. They haven't drilled far enough. Or it hasn't stopped yet. <laughs> hasn't stopped yet. And uh, so and but the, the key thing is that that presides at like, kind of like, a, it's like a ticking clock, those those um, features in that core. And they, they so geologists and paleontologists can use those to mark the passive time with absolute certainty ah. over that 215 million years. So where the Earth's magnetic field has flip-flopped and there's been climate change and everything else, those, those tick marks have kept happening. Mm. So when uh, species have become extinct or appeared, whatever, in the sort of history of life on the planet, they can now say which, what order they came, because these things are happening at different places on the Earth, but the right. climate was common, common everywhere. Ah. So that it provides a, it's like a, well, I guess it's the equivalent of a sort of a, a really accurate clock uh, where you can sort of see the passage of time and measure it. Mm. And so they're actually now being able to use this to sort out a lot of the stuff about the evolution of life on Earth, um, the big climate changes that we've seen and caused by other things. Mm. But while, even while those were happening, ice ages and all that, these, this cyclical change of the planets causing this tick, tick, tick every 405,000 years mm. was has been going on. Do it's, you know where we are at the moment with this cycle? I don't, actually. Okay. It's a good question. I don't know where we are, but at 405,000 years, it's pretty unlikely that's anywhere right. <laughs> crucial for us right now. We've got other problems with yeah, the planet. We, we might not make the next tick mark the way we're going. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is a very gradual sort of thing, not what's going on at the moment. But I'm just so surprised that Venus and Jupiter... Um, I know that Jupiter's big and Venus is relatively close, but it's more than a walk to the dairy away. It's a long way away. Yeah, and Newton, didn't he come up the inverse square law? How can that actually Yeah, well, you know, us? when you do work it out, they do have this subtle effect on things. And yeah. uh, the main thing is that the interesting thing is it's only... It, is, it doesn't create a chaotic problem with the orbit. In other words, the Earth's orbit doesn't sort of really go sort of crazy and and end up sort of the climate goes huge changes. Really subtle things that uh, I don't know what it would mean like today in terms of temperature change today if it was occurring. I'm Mm. not sure about that. but uh, Well, it's more of a background thing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, That has big effects over a long time. All right. What will happen when our sun dies? Have a nice day. Yes, well, again, this is uh, some new sort of results. Uh, I mean, basically, in, in about five billion years, the sun's going to run out of fuel in the centre and its core, and it's going to stop producing energy. Uh, when it starts approaching that direction, uh, theorists have known since the 1950s that basically what should happen is the core should contract uh, under gravity, and that should move the temperature up a bit, but it's not quite high enough to to uh, go a step further and start using helium for its power. It's using hydrogen and the sun doesn't quite have enough mass to go the next stage up. But So its core will shrink down and in doing so uh, the outer layers of the sun will expand up. Now 
that's been known, but would would they expand enough for the sun to shrug off its outer layers and produce what we call a planetary nebula? We've shown these pictures of these beautiful-looking things there, nothing to do with planets. they just kind of an old telescope. They looked a bit like a planet, but oh. they're basically... They're, they're usually beautifully coloured things in Hubble pictures. The Crab Nebula, is that one? No, the Crab Nebula is a supernova, but oh. the Ring Nebula in Lyra is a famous one where a, where there's a white dwarf, a hot, that's the core of a sun-like star in the centre, and it's shrugged off, this layer, off, off its outer layers, and they glow because the hot thing is stimulating right. the atoms I to see. release its colour. But... So, but they only last about 10,000 years, these planetary nebulae phase. The gas gradually disperses and then you just end up with a white dwarf sitting there cooling forever, uh, doing nothing else. Uh, but the question is, would the sun produce, uh, be, have enough mass to produce a planetary nebula? And the consensus has been no, but now using new computations, they say, yes, it is just on the limit. The sun in the future, in 5 billion years, should produce a relatively weak planetary nebula, blow off its outer layers, they'll go off into space, because once the star's expanded up and become a red giant, where it's, it'll be swelled up way past the orbit of Venus, for oh. example, it'll be miles bigger than it is now. Um, but it's only just, gravity's only just holding onto its outer layers, so if it just gets a little push, a oh. bit of extra sort of... Uh, um, pressure then the that whole layer can just drift off and form this planetary nebula so the sun is going to do that uh, it appears based on all the latest uh, models okay i look forward to it um now a mission to study how mars was made this is quite big exploratory news today something took off uh, on a rocket yes this is the uh, um on the 6th of may oh. it uh, was a quite a yeah, so this is the next major NASA mission to Mars, um, and all the previous missions have been looking at the surface, probing, looking at rocks on the surface, and looking at, you know, sort of ice and all sorts of other stuff like that. This one is intended to look inside the planet, so it's really not doing any surface imaging much at all. But um, so it's going to actually, once it gets there, it's going to land. Um, it's not going to go into orbit. As soon as it gets there, it's going to uh, just land somewhere near the equator because they want it to get enough sunlight to keep the solar panels mm -hmm. working well. It's then going to drill down some about few metres down into the middle of the, into, into Mars, and that'll take it a month or so to drill down as far as it can go, which is, you know, 10 metres, 5 metres, something in that order. Mm -hmm. It's not sort of like oil world mm -hmm. depth or anything like that. Um, and they're going to measure the heat flow coming out of the planet. Uh, they've also got a, another couple of very sensitive instruments that will measure basically uh, Mars quakes. Mm -hmm. Mars quakes can be caused by a number of things. Uh, you know, if a meteorite hits Mars somewhere, it'll send a shudder through the planet, and these things will detect it. They're incredibly sensitive. Mm -hmm. They can measure tiny, tiny changes, so they're an extremely sensitive seismometer. Um, so, uh, and also Mars, as it's slowly cooling, is slowly shrinking. So they, so there'll be quakes and shudders going through Mars as the planet is shrinking, and this oh. instrument should be able to measure that as well. Oh, wow. So there's, uh, uh, so that's uh, that's quite going to be some very exciting science uh, basically it'll be able to sort of say you know well you know a lot more about the past history of mars are they going to land on a low point a depression so they don't have they want to land in a waste on digging on the side of a cliff where no no they've chosen it. an area and they want to land on a sort of flat featureless plane it will have cameras but they won't show you anything because it'll just be a flat featureless plane there's no terrain right. they, they want it just to be sitting there quietly in the middle of nowhere not on a slope or right. stuck with a sort of a boulder 
were on one under one leg of the lander or something. Right. So it's uh, they're getting their jollies underneath, not on top. Yeah. So it's a uh, so it's really doing a deep probe of the interior of the of the planet and tell us a great deal more about the planet and mm. how it's. Uh, formed it'll take six and a half months to get there so 26th of november we'll talk about it again in november when it's actually landing because uh, and the other little thing is that with it the, the launch they launch it launch a couple of these little cube sats these sort of four inch cube mm-hmm. things and they are traveling with the satellite uh, along sort of in the same you know not attached to it but just on their own path to it and uh, they will pass close to mars at the time the spacecraft is entering the atmosphere and going into land because you know about the sort of seven minutes of terror that they have where they don't know everything's automatic and these what these these satellites are designed to do is receive the transmissions from and store them from the uh, from uh, the lander uh-huh. uh, as and then retransmit them back to Earth. So this is a sort of an idea that they're going to be using in future mission space missions is send up a um, sort of like a mother uh-huh. a sort of central science package in a satellite but have these smaller El Cheapo jobs that just go along just to talk and to aid communication so you can even when the thing's behind the planet you can talk via those oh, uh, little uh, communications satellites as well so the idea when they go to europa they'll send up a little flock of these things as well yeah. presumably right okay clever thinking uh gravitational waves uh shedding light on neutron star interiors neutron stars are made of the weirdest stuff you can't get it at bunnings <laughs> no they the result the the the, the when a mass star explodes as a supernova, unlike what we were talking about before, like the sun, which will leave a white dwarf behind, which is dense, but nothing like this, uh, the explosion compresses the core of this giant star and creates what we call a neutron star, which is... So you, a typical characteristic of a neutron star would be having about one to two times the mass of the sun, let's call it one and a half times the mass of the sun, crushed into a ball It's about 30 kilometres across. Mm-hmm. So imagine a, a big ball about the size of Auckland, say, uh, but holding the sun's mass plus some. Right. So that, that, that incredibly dense uh, ball, the question is what is... What is the physical state of the interior? I mean, we have... There's no way you can do an experiment on that on Earth. But what they've found... uh, Recently, there was a... We talked about it on the radio. um, It was a great excitement in the astronomical world because they had detected the merger of two neutron stars that were orbiting each other. And when they detected that, they were able to get a a new estimate of the size of the neutron stars. And what they found is that as they got closer and closer and closer together, if the neutron stars were basically fairly squishy, then they would see a slight difference in the gravitational wave signal. What they learnt was that the neutron stars were actually pretty stiff. Oh. That meant that they basically were not, uh, the, the interior was basically neutrons and basically an alternative theory is that in the centre of neutron stars there are quarks which are a, 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 a sort of a squishier form of matter. We can't really make them, We they, they exist but uh, you can't actually do experiments much on the physical nature of them except that in a neutron star you've got enough gravity and and stuff there to, to do that. Oh. So basically what the outcome of that merger was was it suggested that in fact the interior of ne- this these this pair of neutron stars that merged uh, they couldn't have had a quark interior they had they, basically they were neutrons in the inside so that made it stiffer they're going to have to see a lot more of these and one day with any luck they might see one that shows that a very sort of more squishy sort of mm. nature to the uh, these merging objects in which case you know we can actually it'll tell us a great deal about it'll tell theoretical physicists a lot more about what the interior of, uh, of these objects is. When you're considering a neutron star, 
is, isn't it? If you want to see the nucleus of an atom, isn't it a, a, just a 25 kilometer across nucleus of an atom of some sort of element? Because uh, it's, if it's all neutrons, it's the middle of that. Well, except that we don't have nuclei that are just neutrons. We have nuclei that have got protons sort of roughly... Um, Where do the protons go? Well, the electrons get crushed to the protons made into neutrons. Oh. So when you get the pressure really high, then uh, instead of having, like in the middle of the sun, you'll have nuclei with electrons in a very hot sort of plasma state. But if you crush them down enough, then those electrons would actually eventually merge with the protons That's the and produce marriage. neutrons. Yeah, so the, the sun hasn't got the capability to do that, but it hasn't got enough mass. But, you know, these supermassive stars, and that compression occurs during the supernova explosion. So when the... Super, this massive star blasts all its outer layers off, the core gets squished inward so much that the electrons and neutrons combine to, to make... I see. Uh, electrons that, and protons, protons combine to make neutrons. And uh, maybe some of them get squished even further to make the, this quark state of matter that gotcha. has, is still speculative. Far out. Amazing things. Neutron stars. Grant Christie, thank you very, very much. We'll talk again next week and uh, hope for clear skies. Although you probably want some sleep. No, clear skies is good for me. Okay.